If you're a parent, it's interesting that I think we find ourselves always entering into deals. You're laughing and chuckling because you know we're oftentimes entering into deals with our children, it seems. Now, when I talk about those deals, deals can be both positive and negative and require both to agree to the details. For example, an example of a negative deal would be if you don't eat your peas, you can't have dessert. It's a negative deal. An example of a positive deal could be, you know, if you clean your room, we're going to go to a movie. In either case, each person has a responsibility to fulfill their part of the deal. And if not, the deal's off. We as parents constantly entering into those kind of deals. Now, a promise, a promise is much different than a deal or an agreement. A promise is based exclusively, and this is important, on one person making good on their word. I remember saying to my kids when they were younger that I would do my best, that I promised to them that I would take them to Disney World at the earliest opportunity, and that I would do everything I could to make that thing happen within the next couple of months. And I wanted my kids to enjoy what it seems like many kids long and look forward to, to to see Mickey Mouse, to enjoy the Magic Kingdom and all of that. And I wanted to do that for my kids because I loved them, because I wanted them to experience something unique. That was my promise to them. No conditions were involved in that promise. No deals were made. My kids did not have to do anything to help me keep my promise to them. Okay? Now, if on the back side of my promise, I began to add conditions to, to what I told them about going to Disney World, like, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, you've got to keep your room clean for the next six months. I mean, as great as that might be. Or, you know what? If you really want to go to Disney World, you've got to do the dishes and empty the dishwasher for the next six months. Now think about that. If once having promised to them, I now then added conditions or requirements to the promise, how would my kids have responded? How would you have responded in a situation like that? Well, I think my kids would have responded with a degree of outrage and disappointment because they would have said, Dad, you promised, and you know what? Cleaning my room and doing the dishes was not a part of the promise. And my kids would have been outraged. They would have been bothered by that, and rightly so, because I was now changing the elements of my promise to them. I was changing the promise into an agreement or a deal. You see, having once promised, I could not, with integrity, later add conditions to that promise. Because my kids down the road would have said, yeah, Dad may promise to do this or that, but you know what? It's probably going to turn into a deal, and I'm going to have to do something. The difference between a promise and a deal is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. And it's in this passage of Scripture, as we continue in the series, Get to the Heart of the Matter, where we will discover that a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ is based solely, is based solely upon God's promise to us. Because of his grace and his love for us, it is not based upon good works or adherence to a list of religious regulations. 
It's so important to understand what Paul's talking about in this passage to understand the difference between a promise and a deal. And God is saying, I'm going to love you. I'm going to lavish my grace upon you. And it's my promise to you. No strings attached. So if you turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, 15 to 29, and if you need one, a, a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will loan you one. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Let me read this for you so you can kind of get a sense of what's going on here before we begin to walk through this verse by verse. Paul says in verse 15 of Galatians 3, he said, in 3, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary uh, implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or jail keeper until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. When I read this passage of scripture, I said, now I know why Tim decided to take this weekend off. (laughs) Not really. It's a fascinating passage of scripture. But what we need to understand here is that God wants to work with us and deal with us according to a promise that is unconditional given to us. The first thing that you need to know if you want to have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ is recognize that God's promise of a right relationship with Him comes through faith as a gift and not by religious works or adherence to a list of religious duties. We find that in verses 15 through 18. It's interesting, the word promise in this passage of Scripture is used eight times referring to God's promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise given by God involved being justified by faith alone plus nothing else. And enjoying the blessings of a right relationship with him and the promise of eternal life. Look back to Galatians chapter 3 at verse 6. Galatians 3 verse 6, a passage that Tim dealt with last uh, last week. We read there to kind of get a flow of things. It says, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that 
It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith, it says, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This promise that Paul is referring to here to Abraham was given by God to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Turn to your Bibles back there if you would. This is the very first time that God encounters Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and gives to him this unconditional promise, this covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 and 3. We read there in Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, and this was before his name was changed, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. An unconditional promise given to Abram at this point in time. Interesting, and you might want to write these verses down, but on several other occasions through the book of Genesis, God repeated this covenant, this promise, this unconditional promise to him. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, that was Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. And in every instance... The promise from God was unconditional. A no-strings-attached pledge. Abraham didn't have to do anything to make the promise become a reality. By simply believing in the promise that God gave to him and living his life based upon that promise, based upon God's word, to deliver on that promise, Abraham was declared righteous by God. Now, there were some in the church of Galatia that believed that, yeah, Abraham, yeah, he was saved by faith. But then interesting, with the giving of the law to Moses, some 430 years later, they believed that there was now an additional way, kind of an add-on to the original promise on how to be made right before God in obedience to the Mosaic law was the additional requirement that the believers in Galatia thought was a part of God's promise. And you see, what Paul is going to be addressing here is that God had originally given a promise, unconditional, no strings attached. But then when you had the coming of the law of Moses, they're going, oh, wow, okay, what else is God doing here? And there were some who wanted to add the laws of Moses to the unconditional promise that God had given to Abraham. It was an add-on. It was like, okay, the promise is now being turned into a deal. See the difference there? They believed that it was now a deal that God was giving to the followers, his followers. And Paul was addressing that. And they were struggling with, how can we blend or mix the promise to Abraham and the laws of Moses? They're trying to mix those two together. You see, there were people in the church in Galatia that wanted to honor God's promise that was given to Abraham and honor God's laws given to Moses. And there were some who believed and taught that a right relationship with God 
came through faith, but also it then included the observance of a list of religious regulations, the Mosaic Law. Well, Paul begins his argument to those in the church of Galatia against those that believed or taught this with an illustration that's drawn from everyday life. Look at verse 15 of Galatians 3. Paul says, let me give you a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now imagine, imagine that you have written a will that has been signed, witnessed, and approved by a licensed probate attorney. And in that will, you specify who will get what and when. And soon after your untimely death, selected family members, friends, gather in the lawyer's office to hear your will read. And as it's being read, some of the folks are pleased by what they hear because you're going to get the lake house. You're going to get the Mercedes Benz. You're going to get all of these things and some are pleased. And, you know, um, that's, that's pretty cool. Others are surprised that you never thought that, you know, you would give this kind of stuff away to this person in the family or friend. And, and some are a bit disappointed because all you get is a, a scrapbook of family pictures. Okay. The will can be contested legally if you don't like what's in the will. But no one can alter. They can't alter or invalidate its original terms as long as it's demonstrated that when you made the will, you were in, conf- in full control of your mental faculties when you made it. Okay? It's the illustration that Paul's using here. Now, Paul points, his point is this, that if a human's will cannot be revised or revoked once it's put into effect how much more indisputable and eternal is a promise made by the all-powerful god of the universe who was obviously in full control of his mental faculties when he made his original promise to abraham and that we are going to experience blessing through that promise okay look at verses 16 and 17 it says now the promises were made to abraham and to his offspring It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Paul's saying, the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. And what is so amazing here, in Paul's argument is that God made this promise to Abraham with the plan in place, which included the laws of Moses and Jesus Christ, the promised seed, who would come and fulfill God's demand for total and complete righteousness according to the law, and how that would be fully met in the person of Christ as a sinless, completely righteous son of God. Look at verse 18. It says, For if the inheritance... What's the inheritance? Well, the inheritance is the the promises of sins forgiven, a right relationship with God. Comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see, friends, as God gave to Abraham the promise of an opportunity for a right relationship with him through faith, in a very similar way, God is giving to us today the same opportunity to have a right relationship with him through faith. But we have an advantage over Abraham, a significant advantage over Abraham. 
in that we know, we know in whom we have believed in a way that Abraham did not know. You see, we have been able to see God's plan of redemption unfold in the person of Jesus Christ. And what a privilege we have far beyond the privilege that, that Abraham had. And you see, God was saying to, to Abraham, I am promising you that you will be justified by your faith, faith alone, not by the addition of all of these added things, all of these added works. Now consider with me for a moment. When we stop to think about the means for a right relationship with God, it is the same today as it was for Abraham. It is by faith in faith alone. In the promise of God's word, not a deal entered into. Write this verse down, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's a verse I'm sure you're familiar with where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. If you go back to Galatians, Verse 18, God gave to Abraham a promise. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9 that it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. God is freely giving to us the opportunity, a no-strings-attached gift of life with Him. It's a gift He's making available to us. Now, consider this. Have you ever had to work for a birthday present? Any of you ever have to work for a Christmas present? I don't ever remember having this expectation placed upon my kids when it came to Christmas and birthday that the gifts that we are providing for them were based upon the things that they did or didn't do. The very nature of a gift is that you cannot earn it. And you may not even deserve it. I remember on several occasions, Christmas Eve, after the presents were already under the tree, because of the way my kids were acting, I'm going, you know what? They do not deserve those Christmas presents. And you have to ask my kids the things that they were doing. But I'm going, they didn't deserve those. But never did we pull those gifts away from underneath the Christmas tree. Why? Because the very nature of a gift is that you can't earn it, and you may not even deserve it. And God is saying to us, as he said to Abraham, based on Ephesians chapter 2, that it is the gift of God, not a result of works or of religious or adherence to a list of religious regulations that is going to give you life and establish a relationship with God. Now, it's interesting that even though my kids didn't deserve some of those Christmas presents or birthday presents that we got them, they still got them. What's also interesting is you think about having a right relationship with God is that God is making available to all of his creation, the entire world, that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God is saying, I have given to humanity, to you, a gift. It is the gift of a right relationship with the creator of the universe. It comes through faith and acceptance of the promise of a unique gift of sins forgiven, the hope of heaven, eternal life. But much Like my kids, when Christmas morning came around, they had a decision to make when they came out of the bedrooms and ran down the hallway to the Christmas tree, video, camera, plane, we've all been there. They had a choice. They could go to the tree, look at what was underneath there and go, eh, I don't want anything. The reality is many 
folks in this world are doing the exact same thing when it comes to the gift that God has made available to them. They go, I don't want it, and they walk away. The other reality is that my kids could walk over and they could take that gift because their name is on it and they could just take the gift back to the room and, and set it on their shelf and, and not open it and do anything with it. They've received the gift, but they've not done anything with the gift. And that's like many people today who may step into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They may receive and accept what God has given to them, but then they don't go any further than that initial first step. And what God is saying to us, based upon the promise that he's given to us, is I want to give you life and give it to you to the full. That requires that you not only recognize that this is a gift, it's a no-strings-attached gift to you of sins forgiven, a right relationship with me, but he's also saying to us, he's saying, open the gift. Enjoy everything that I have in it for you because it will blow you away as to what it means to walk with me in intimacy as the God of the universe. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. That's the promise that God has been making to us. Recognize that God's promise of a right relationship with him comes through faith as a gift and not by some religious work. Okay? The second thing you need to know if you want to have a life pleasing to God is that religious works reveal your inability to live a righteous life before God. Paul has argued that a second program, like the law of Moses, that God introduced later, with a different purpose, cannot in any way dilute the original promise given to Abraham and to us through the person of Jesus Christ. You with me? So the logical question is this. Well, what was the purpose of the law? Funny you should ask, because that's exactly what Paul asks in verse 19. Why then the law? Why do we have all of these religious regulations that were given to the Galatians? Why the law? We needed it, Paul says. Why? Notice what he says in verse 19. Because of transgressions until the offspring, that is Christ, should come. Now what's Paul doing here? Well, following Abraham's death, God continued to remind the descendants of Abraham of the promise, of his promise. Eventually, however, the Hebrews found themselves helplessly enslaved in Egypt. And God, having compassion, as he always has compassion on his people, finds them in this desperate situation. He sends Moses, okay, to deliver the people from their oppressive condition. And after the exodus, as the nation was gathered at, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God gave Moses his many laws, including the Ten Commandments. The laws God gave to Moses, they weren't promises in the strictest sense. But they were deals. Okay? They were really deals. God was saying to the nation of Israel at the, mount, at, at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God was saying to his people, he says, if you do this, then I will do this. If you don't do this, then I will do this. All right? It was a deal. It was a mutual agreement that had both positive and negative implications to it based upon their faithfulness of what they did or didn't do. Okay? God's laws were really two party agreements of religious Social 
and moral regulations that the people needed to live by that they themselves had agreed to. And that's important to understand. What was the purpose of the law? It helped to give the nation of Israel structure and civility and an understanding as to how to relate to one another and to God. Interesting because the people, after Moses had come down from the top of Mount Sinai and shared with the people of Israel the details of this agreement, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, the people says, we will do everything the Lord has said. They made an agreement. They said, we will do what you expect of us. And Exodus 19, verse 8 goes on to say, So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The reality, friends, was that the nation of Israel could not keep the laws. I mean, if you're familiar with the nation of Israel, you realize they were not able to keep the laws. As hard as they might try, and even though they agreed to them, they just would not be able to live their life according to the religious regulations that they themselves had agreed to. And so the laws, the laws of Moses, religious regulations, revealed or brought to light their desperate condition of ungodliness and sinfulness. And the laws became God's diagnostic tool to expose not only the nation's sinfulness, but also humanity's. That's important to understand here. You see, obedience to the law was not the remedy for sin. It was only a diagnostic tool which revealed their inability to live by a standard that they themselves had agreed to. Right? You with me? It's important to understand that. The law was a diagnostic tool that showed the nation of Israel and also us our inability to live according to a list of religious rules and expectations. We're never able to do it. We're never able to do it. Several years ago, when my daughter Erin was in high school, she had to go to the hospital to have an appendix removed. Before we knew what the problem was, while in the emergency room, the doctors and nurses ran a series of tests, a series of medical tests to determine the problem. I mean, they put the the blood pressure cup on her arm and they took her blood pressure. Uh, They drew blood. In the process of drawing blood, they discovered that her white cell count was elevated. Um, they took x-rays and, and the appendix looked suspicious. They took her temperature and, and it was above normal. The tests were used to reveal a problem. And it was determined that it was appendicitis. The tests, understand this, the test could not cure her. The test only revealed that there was a serious problem. Now, there's also a backstory to that story of my daughter that uh, I won't go into right now, but it's, she came through that fine, even though I was accused of being a bit insensitive and uh, not very compassionate, okay? It's another story. You see what I'm saying here? The tests only reveal that there's a problem. The laws or religious regulations that we may want to try to live by only reveal that there's a problem. The test never can cure the problem. A number of years ago, I was putting an addition on my house, and I needed to use a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? It's a string with a little metal thing and a point at the bottom to determine if my walls were properly aligned. 
if they were vertical or plumb as, as, as it's called. And in one instance, I discovered that one of the walls, that some of my work, one wall in particular, was not plumb. Now, I didn't use the plumb line, okay, to correct my mistake. I used a sludge hammer. I used a saw. I used anything else I could use to get that wall aligned and in plumb. I could not use the plumb line to do that. The plumb line revealed that there was a problem. The laws that Paul was referring to as he's talking to the, to the Christians in Galatia only reveal that there was a problem. There's a wonderful illustration of this exact same principle of the plumb line found in the book of Amos chapter 7. You might want to just write the verse down. Don't turn there. But in Amos chapter 7, I love this. Here's the prophet Amos. It says, this is what he showed me. That is the Lord, Amos is saying. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb. With a plumb line in his hand. So you get the mental picture here. It's as if God is standing here with a plumb line. In the midst of the nation of Israel, Amos 7 goes on to say, And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? He says, A plumb line, I replied. And then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And if you go on to read in that passage of Scripture, what you understand there is that the plumb line was God's law, and he was symbolically, he had placed that plumb line in their midst of his people. And the nation of Israel was not plumb, okay? They were out of alignment with God. The laws that the nation of Israel had agreed to live by, they couldn't live by them. God was saying, you agreed to this, but you're not living according to those laws. The plumb line that was being used revealed their inability to live according to God's standards. The Mosaic law or religious regulations can only reveal or expose my total inability to live according to God's holy standard. It cannot cure the problem of sin. And that is so important to understand. That was what Paul was trying to get across to the, to the folks in the church of Galatia. That adherence to a list of religious regulations and rules or the laws of Moses for them only reveal there's a problem. It does not deal. It does not cure. Now, realizing the Jews would not be able to live their lives according to God's holy standard, God also included a system, a system of sacrifices designed to bring a temporary forgiveness or a a covering over of sins to those who used it by faith. Notice verse 19 of Galatians 3. It says, the offspring, again, that is Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. Back in the nation of Israel, the way in which the nation dealt with the sins that were revealed through their inability to live according to the law or religious regulations or rules, God implemented a process of sacrifices, of animal sacrifices. But the repetition of offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after thousands and thousands of gallons of blood were shed, they were shed for a covering over of the nation's sin, They found themselves in this desperate, insane cycle of only having their sins covered over and not actually forgiven. That's what the author of Hebrews was referring to when he wrote in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, in relationship to the law. The law was but a shadow of the good things to come. The good things to come would be faith in the Lamb of God. 
Jesus Christ, the final and ultimate sacrifice who would provide for man's sin condition, for your sin condition, for my sin condition. Not just a covering over of sin, but for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what was so frustrating for the nation of Israel. They knew they couldn't live by the standard that they themselves had agreed to because the law and the religious rules and regulations always revealed that they were falling up short. They were coming up short. And so they knew that they could sacrifice these animals according to God's method of revealing man's sin and inability to live according to the standard that they had agreed to. But the frustration was they had to do this all the time. There was never an end to the giving of the sacrifices until, until the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, God's Son, who lived a perfect life, a sinless life, A life that was absolutely, completely, totally pleasing to God. Jesus Christ. As he says, he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. And it was when Jesus Christ finally hung on that cross with his blood shed and his arms stretched out, it's like no more sacrifices. No more covering over of sins but an absolute final forgiveness of sins. Well, a second important question was being raised for the church in Galatia. Notice verse 21. The question is asked, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Are religious rules and regulations and the laws of Moses contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You see, again, friends, the purpose of the law was to reveal man's inability to live a holy, godly life. And here's Paul's point. It, obedience to the Mosaic law cannot produce eternal life. If it could, then it would have made the death of Jesus Christ tragically unnecessary. God's grace and man's faith would be unnecessary or at best an optional means of salvation. But Jesus Christ did die. And therefore the law could never give the sinner life and righteousness in God's program. But it did something else. Look at verse 22. What did the law do? It imprisoned everything under sin. That leads us to the third thing that you need to know as we learn how to live a life of faith by the promise of God's grace. And that is replace religious works. With faith in Christ alone. Because it's faith in Christ alone that unites you to Him and unites you to others. Living by religious rules and regulations does two things. First, it'll make you a prisoner of your own rules and religious regulations. But second, it'll separate you from people more than bring you together. Notice verses 23 and 24 where Paul writes, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, or another translation is the law was our jail keeper until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, he says. You see, friends, conformity to religious regulations might make you look good on the outside. 
And you might in many instances be able to live according to those religious regulations and standards. And because you do that, you might appear on the outside to be a good moral person. But it cannot gain you favor in God's eyes. And it will not unite you to Christ and others. But in reality, it makes you a prisoner and you're held captive. The first car that I ever owned was a silver 1971 Pontiac Le Mans Sport. But I remember one of those? A few, okay? That was my car. It was a 1971. It had bucket seats, rally wheels, vinyl top, even had air conditioning, AM radio in the top of it all off. It had this cool eight-track player. <laughs> yeah. It was a pretty hip vehicle. I spent hours washing that car, waxing that car, cleaning that car. At the first sign of dirt, I would wash it, I would wax it, and I would clean it again. I love that car, and I was an unhealthy person (laughs) because of what I put into that car. The problem was I never spent the time changing the oil, keeping it tuned up, Checking the other mechanical parts. The exterior of the car looked great. But mechanically, the car eventually fell apart. Because I was ignoring the most important part of the vehicle. The internal workings that were there. And you see, I had become a slave. I had become a prisoner to my car and how it looked. And I was so focused on the wrong things that I had become consumed and a prisoner to my car. It had total control over my life. You see, I didn't own that car. The car owned me. I had placed so much importance on the exterior of the car that I neglected the most important parts, the things that make the car run. And you know, friends, in a similar way, There are many today who are so obsessed with the externals of religion and rule-keeping that it has resulted in the neglect of the most important part of who you are, the inner soul and spirit. And you know what? You may look good on the outside, but you may be here this morning dying on the inside. And it's alienating you from Christ and from others. Jesus had some pretty harsh words for the religious rule keepers in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, where he gives this scathing rebuke, these woes against the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says, woe to you, Pharisees and Sadducees, you hypocrites. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs or sepulchers. On the outside, he says, you look great. But inside, he said, you are full of dead men's bones. You see, they had so much focus on the externals. It was to the neglect of what was going on inside their heart and soul. They felt like adherence to the religious rules that were given to the nation by God were more important than walking in intimacy with Jesus. Paul was warning the Christians in Galatia, and he's warning us today. 
To not be so in love with the religious regulations of the law in rule keeping. To be so concerned about the exterior, although it is important, but in comparison to the internal workings in life of the soul, that if it is neglected, you will eventually fall apart. That was his word to the church of Galatia. He says the, the law had a purpose. It revealed sin. It could not cure. What could cure? Faith in Jesus Christ received as a gift. Notice verses 25 and 26 in Galatians 3. It says, but now that faith has come, he's saying, now that it has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are free from that jail keeper, he was saying. For in Jesus Christ, he says, you are all sons of God through faith. Living by religious rules and regulations will not only make you a prisoner to those things, but it will also separate you from others. Because if you don't conform or live by my rules, okay, and I believe that these rules are really, 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 really important to me, then I'm not sure that I want to really relate to you or get close to you because you don't really agree with all of my rules. The problem is that when you take some of those religious works or even some of those religious preferences that in and of themselves may not be wrong, but when you elevate them to levels of essentials of the faith, like styles of music, dress, what you do or don't do on the Lord's Day, what you drink or don't drink, and you make that an essential or use that as a litmus test for fellowship, then you have allowed religious works and preferences to create divisions in the body of Christ. And that's not God-honoring. Friends, we have a choice to make today. Do we live by a deal that is by the regulations of law and religious regulations, as, as good as some of those might be? But the reality is that they will only frustrate and continue to condemn and hold us prisoners and keep us alienated from one another. Or do we live by the promise of God's grace, by faith given to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, that will allow us to live as we were meant to live? In freedom, in an intimacy, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. At a special chapel service in the Ohio State Penitentiary, the governor was to grant pardons to several convicts whose cases that he had reviewed. In fact, the the pardoned convicts were to gain their freedom that very day. The suspense mounted as it came time for the governor to announce the names of of those that were selected to receive the pardon. The governor began by saying, Reuben Johnson, come forward and receive your pardon. No one responded. The chaplain there directed his attention toward Mr. Johnson and said, he said, Reuben, it's you. Come forward. But the man looked behind him, guessing there was somebody else by that name. Then the chaplain pointed directly at Reuben. He said, Reuben, it's you. You are the one. You're the one. And after a long pause, Reuben slowly approached the governor to receive his pardon. After the service, when the other prisoners were instructed to move to their cells, Reuben Johnson got up from his seat, fell in line with the other prisoners, began to walk with them back to his cell. And the warden called out and he said, Reuben, 
you don't belong there anymore. You are a free man. You see, friends, having made a decision to place your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ and follow Him, but continue to live a life of religious rule-keeping, believing that obedience to a list of rules, as good as those might seem, will guarantee your salvation or believing that they will enhance your acceptance before God once you have already been set free by Jesus Christ makes as much sense as receiving a pardon for crimes once committed and then marching back into a prison cell to pay for them. Right? And how absurd is that? Every time the disciples of Jesus Christ started establishing rules like... No children near Jesus. Don't let the crowd touch Jesus. Don't talk to that Samaritan woman. Don't let people waste expensive perfume. Jesus told them, knock it off. And his rebuke was usually followed by a lecture that said, you still don't really get it, do you? We are not substituting religious rules with our rules. We're substituting religious rules with me. Jesus kept saying, follow me, walk with me, get to know me. Because when you do, you will know how to live and what to do. It's not about religious rule keeping. It's about walking in intimacy with Jesus. And when you're walking in intimacy with Him, you will know what to do and not to do. Amen? Let's pray.